Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for another morning, another Sunday. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for Sundays. Sundays have become to us a a day that's on a whole other level than other days. It's the day in which we gather with others to worship our Lord Jesus. It's the day in which we hear the Word of God preached to us. We, We want that. We need that. And so, Father, we're thankful to be here. And Peter has been taking us through suffering. God, we want to understand what it means to look like a Christian in our world today. For our neighbors to think that we are Christians. For our family to think that we are Christians. God, the Word of God instructs us. So we pray today, Lord, that You would teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We took a break from 1 Peter last week as we had guest preacher David Seals here. Hope you liked that as he was talking to us about missions. I haven't forgotten him saying that 50,000 people die every day in the world. I have not gotten over that. I hope that you have not either. I was thankful for him to be here. But now we'll go back to 1 Peter. We're somewhat toward the end. There are only five chapters, and chapter 5 is not very long in Peter. So I imagine sometime here in the next few weeks we'll be finishing the book of 1 Peter. But today we start with chapter 4, and and Peter again uh, brings up suffering. Peter is talking to us about suffering. He's talking to Christians who are facing some persecution, some difficulty, some trials, some opposition yet who remain faithful to Christ in the face of opposition. And throughout the book, he has talked about how different, different people are to conduct themselves to look like they are Christians. And he went through all of that. At chapter 4, he comes back to facing suffering. But it sounds like here in chapter 4, it's not like a persecution, somebody's coming at you uh, with guns and weapons to just attack you. It sounds like here that they are seeing that you are different from them, and so now they're going to ridicule you. Which in many ways, in our USA context, this is a lot more realistic than maybe some of what we're seeing in in the Middle East. In the Middle East, we're seeing some very difficult persecution. And in a lot of ways, we Americans can't really relate to that. Hardly any of us, if any, have ever been physically threatened Because we have faith in Jesus Christ. Physically threatened. Yet our passage today, from chapter 4, is talking about when when you are living your life set apart from the world's values, you are living your life with Jesus as your treasure in obedience to the Word of God, then naturally there are going to be some disconnects between you and your life and the people who aren't believers in Christ in their lives. And when they see that, they malign you, the Scriptures say. How do we deal with that? That's what 1 Peter chapter 4 is about. Let's read 1 Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, 
drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the Gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Interesting passage. I really, really wanted to keep going and go all the way to the, to the natural break, which is there at verse 11. But 7 through 11 is so, is so good and strong, I wanted to preach it by itself, and so I split it up. Next week, I'll preach verses 7 through 11. And then next week, we have Father's Day. Father's Day is two weeks from today. I hope you're ready for that. So today, we have these first six verses. I want to just walk through it. I want us to get it. I think there are some worldview-shaping ideas in our passage today that you need to hear and you need to remember. And really what should be happening in a church with the preaching of the Word and a pastor that is, is making an effort to know, to know you all, that you all should be growing in your understanding of what Christianity is. Now granted, some of you may not know very much about the Bible, may not understand very much about Christianity, and that's okay. But in your faithful attendance to church and hearing the Word week after week, you should be increasing in what the Bible calls Christianity, life in Christ, faith in Christ. I trust that many of you, or all of you, are growing in the Word. You are a stronger believer in Christ now because of Sunday mornings and the commitment to the Word. Let me give you a quick example. This is in my notes. I got an email this week about somebody who's really, really, really upset about a situation of one of their family members. And the things that they were concerned about were not concerns to me. And the things that they weren't concerned about are big, huge, glaring sins in their lives. I was troubled at that. The things that they were concerned about were such little, small things that were not even a big deal, that are not even labeled as sin in the Scriptures. But they didn't like those, and they were rubbing them the wrong way, and they, and, 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 and they were irritated. But the things that were there and obvious and clearly a problem uh, that, that have been concerning me for years now, quite frankly, they have not been bothered by. You know what I thought? They don't attend church regularly enough. They don't know what the Bible says. Their idea of Christianity is that they believe in Jesus and they love God and they're trying to do their best. That's not Christianity, folks. That's what it means to be a human. If you're not trying to do your best as a human, then you're, you're way off of, from being a, being a human. That's not Christianity. I was troubled at the idea that they didn't understand enough about the Scriptures to apply it to their lives, to see what are the wrong things in their lives, and to not be worked up over things that aren't that wrong. That comes through being committed to the Word. And somebody who reads the Bible, or, and also, and, and maybe even better, somebody who comes on a Sunday morning and listens regularly, week after week, to the preaching of the Word, God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, shapes your understanding to where you're growing on what it means to live for God. And I pray that that continues today, as I think it will. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So what he's doing here is he is reminding us that Christ is our example. Now, Christ being our example is huge. Christ suffered. He is an example. We want to be like him. But if you will remember, when we talked about Christ's suffering, which is up there at chapter 3, verse 18. If you look up just a little bit, it's just about uh, a few verses up. 
Chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You remember then, when I preached on that just a few weeks ago, that I told you, Christ is certainly our example. We do look to him. We do ask the question, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And all those things are good. But Christ is not only and not merely an example to us. Christ is our Savior. He is the one who had to be sacrificed on the cross for us. We are not people who only say, what would Jesus do in this situation? We are people who 24-7 say, what would Jesus do in this situation? How can I live like Him? How can I look like Him? How can I think and react and deal with situations like Him? And at the end of the day, after we've done that, for every single moment of our lives, if we have, we still are sinners in need of forgiveness of sins, in need of somebody to die in our place to make us right with God, to bring us to God. And that's what Jesus did in His suffering. His suffering was not a model example for us. His suffering was because of our sins so that we could be saved. And we need to Never forget that. I'm okay with us saying Jesus is our example, but He is our example as He is our mediator, as He is our Savior, as He is the one who died on the cross and shed His blood for our sins, because of our sins, to wash us of our sins and to make us new without our sins. But now Peter is bringing us back to the idea that He suffered, and He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, since He did... This changes everything. Our perspective on suffering is so unlike the world's. Our perspective on suffering is so other than people you know who are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our perspective on suffering is based off what our Lord Jesus was like. And it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, here's what we do. We arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. We arm ourselves. We put it on us. We put the gear on. We put the mindset on. We get ourselves into that train of thought. We have that focus, that perspective, that Jesus' suffering means everything for us, not just as our example, but as our Savior. And we think this way. Folks, if you're not here today, aware of that your thinking should be completely contrary to what the world thinks, then you have yet to understand the basics of Christianity. And I'm not mad at you over it. I'm excited that you're here today to learn that. The Bible teaches in 1 Peter 4 that there is a new way of arming yourselves to think about being a Christian. And I hope today it changes. Arm yourselves with this new type of thinking. Now, He's talking about a suffering that comes about because of your commitment to Christ. And that's why he makes this next statement. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's talking about a suffering that comes because of your faith. He doesn't mean that we ever have stopped sinning. He doesn't mean that the suffering has caused us to stop sinning. Here's what he means. He means that you have separated yourself from a sinful worldly lifestyle and therefore suffering has come, which happens. Which happens, many of you are dealing with that right now. Many of you are struggling with the loneliness that comes with not being connected to all your worldly friends. Many of you are coming, many of you are coming with, the, with the simplicity that comes with living a faithful life with low money. Cost of living's high, income's down. Many people these days who are Christians are having to live honest lives without a lot of money, which means not a lot of extras, which means not the best shoes, which means not the best stuff. But that's okay. You're living faithful to God. And what he's reminding us here is that the suffering in the flesh comes 
when we have ceased from sin, and what he means ceased from sin is that we have broken our lives away from sin. The great New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner says, the commitment to suffer as evidence that they have broken with the life of sin. In other words, we are so committed to not sinning, we are so committed to hating our sins, we are so trying to not live a life of sin, we are so different towards sin now than what we used to be, that we are okay and willing and even committed to suffering if that's what God brings about through a righteous lifestyle. If somebody wants to egg my house because I preach Jesus, then the Bible teaches me to say, I'm okay with you egging my house. If somebody wants to make fun of my kids because their dad's a Bible preacher, well then, we and my kids have got to learn to be okay with that. Because that's what the Bible says. If somebody wants to make fun of you because you're a 40-year-old virgin, like the Hollywood movies like to do, you've got to be okay with that. Because that's what Jesus says is glorious. And if your past was full of everything but virginity, but Jesus has done a work in your life and now you're all about living a life of purity, and everybody else tries to remind you of what you used to be, you're okay with that too. Because this is what God has called us to. What he's saying here is that arm yourselves with this way of thought. Think this way. Think the way you have learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the God-man hanging on the cross while some little, puny, wimpy, punk people spit in his face and mocked him saying, hey, you think you're so bad. If you were so bad, why don't you get down off the cross and bring it over here? Why don't you cross this, cross this line and come try to fight me? And if they would have said that to any one of you all, you'd have stuck your chest out, went over there and tried to beat them up. Because we're so yet to arm ourselves with that way of thinking. And Jesus could have beat them up however he wanted to. He could have been Mike Tyson. He could have been MMA. He could have flicked them so hard they flew into outer space. He could have blown on them. He could have closed his eyes and just thought about them burning up. He could have done anything. But he had a different way of thinking. He had you and me in mind. He had the victory of sin. He had the wrath of God being quenched so that you and I don't face the wrath of God. He had the punishment of God being dealt with so that we would not be punished by God. And as a man of all men, he hung on the cross, he had us in mind, and he didn't give in to the weak little puny guys who wanted to make fun of him in that moment. He armed himself with a way of thinking that God would have taught him to. And Peter tells us, you too. Arm yourselves with the way of thinking. Be committed to suffering in the flesh because you have committed yourselves away from sin. What it means to believe in Christ, listen to me, is that we have parted ways with our sins. Does sin still creep up because we're in the flesh and we're not to heaven yet? Yes, absolutely. But our disposition, but our great desires, but our normalcy, but our life tendencies, what we're committed to is not habits of sin. We are running from those. We have died to those with Christ on the cross. We we are living a different way. We have armed ourselves with the thinking that we hate sin. In our new members class, which we have another one starting up in September once we get past summer, anybody interested in becoming a part of our church, we encourage you to be in this class. <clears throat> it meets four times. Before we really get into teaching what our church is all about, we spend the whole first session talking about somebody must be a born-again, true believer in Christ to be a part of the church. And we end that last session with this quote that says... If hell were on one side 
and willingly sinning was on the other side, I would gladly jump into hell than willingly sin against my God. I love that quote. It's a big, strong quote. Hell being defined as eternal suffering. Sin being defined as disobeying God. And if you and I had to jump into hell, now hell not being defined as sin, hell being defined as eternal suffering, or willingly sinning, we would gladly jump into hell. Why? Because we hate our sins. Christ died for our sins. Sin is a direct disobedience, rebellion, wrong act toward our Maker, God. And Christians are people who fundamentally, deep down, with their new hearts, hate their sins. You and I should have a problem with sins in our lives. And you and I should have a really big problem with our own sins and some smaller problems with everybody else's sins. And I really want our church to get that. I don't want you to have a problem with everybody else's sins and not too many problems with your own sins. That is the height of being judgmental. We don't want that. Worry about your own sins. So Peter begins chapter 4 by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, we now arm ourselves with this type of thinking that reminds us we have separated ourselves from our sinful lives, our sinful ways, our sinful desires. We have committed ourselves to Christ and we know what Christ is like. He was willing to suffer for something greater. We must be willing to suffer for something greater. Christians are committed to suffering. Especially if it's suffering or sin. If you're a high school student or a college student, and you think you're so cool that you don't need to study, you got this. The test comes up, you get to see in the test, and you realize, uh oh, I should have studied. But the person sitting right beside you has got the cheat sheet. has got the answers. What should a Christian high school student or the Christian college student do? It's a no-brainer if you read the Scriptures. Take your F. Take your F. Fail the test. Then cheat against God. I love failures with integrity a whole lot more than I like good grades with no integrity. And so does God. Now, you need to get disciplined when you come home and say, I failed the test, I didn't study. You need to be dealt with for that. But it's a whole lot better than coming home saying, yeah, I made an A. I didn't even study. I just cheated off old girl's paper. It's terrible. God is talking to us about this. Verse 2. Because we have armed ourselves with the same way of thinking, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time, I like this, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The rest of the time. Peter has in mind here that, that, that our lives are on a time scale. Peter has in mind here that life is passing us by rather quickly, and I think some of you here today are fully aware of this. 
I know that I've been talking about it a lot lately because I'm getting really, really aware of it. I was laying on the floor with Carolina last night because she couldn't go to sleep. She finally fell asleep, and when I stood up, my knees popped so loud it woke her up. True story. I'm getting so old that my knees pop when I stand up. It'll wake a sleeping baby. I'm 35 years old. I better have my priorities in order. And that's not to make light of anybody that's 55, 65, 75, or 85. It just means I'm getting there. Well, if you're 55, 65, 75, 85, you're getting there too. Hey, this, this time that God's given us on earth, remember, He told us that our days are numbered. We're going to meet our Maker really soon. And as I just reminded them on Thursday at Mr. J.T. Williams' funeral, we don't know when that's going to be. It comes rather quickly. And so Peter says, the reason why we are so committed to this sort of thing is because our mind is focused on God who has ordained all of our days and all of our steps. We're willing to go through whatever He wants us to go through as long as He gets the glory with our lives. And so he says, for the rest of the time, we will live in the flesh no longer for our human passions. Which means... Hey, the fact that you've got human passions or the fact that you have uh, memories in the past or days in the past where you were living according to your human passions is not something to be all that ashamed of. We were all that way. All of us have things in the past that did not reflect us treasuring up Christ. All of us have had days where we said things we wish we didn't say. All of us have had seasons where we were living in ways we didn't live. Many of us have relationships that we're not proud of. Many of us have possessions that we're thinking, why in the world did I buy that? We have these human passions in us that are not for the glory of God. They're passions that reflect worldliness. They're they're passions that reflect that I want you to think great of me more than I want you to think great of God. But he says, with the time that we have left, because we have turned from our sins and committed ourselves to Jesus and armed ourselves with the thinking that He has... We are not going to live anymore for our passions, but we are going to live for the will of God. And if the will of God is for us to stay here in Fairdale for 50 years and totally change the culture, then we'll do that. If the will of God is for us to suffer and die right now from cancer, then we'll take that. If the will of God is for us to have lots of children, we'll take that. And if the will of God is for us to have no children, we'll take that. We have armed ourselves with a new way of thinking that says, in Christ, forgive of my sins, I want to live the life that God is working in me. Whatever that may be. And we, have no longer going, we are no longer going to be living with our passions. Our human, worldly, sinful passions, that is. Because we have been saved and made new in Christ, we now live differently. I want to ask you if you have seen your passions change. I want to alarm you that if your passions have not changed, then something's wrong. Maybe you've not come to Christ. Maybe you've learned some about Christ. Maybe you now are a little bit more involved in church, but you have not come to Him with full surrender. Your heart is not new. If you had a super foul mouth before you came to Christ, and now you're all about Christ, but the foul mouth has not lessened or weakened or changed, then has your heart really changed? I understand that we're a work in progress, and that foul mouth happens sometimes. I'm not against that. But there ought to be an effort and a progress. 
If you were a womanizer and all you could do was think about women and every time you saw a girl, you thought about her and all you could do was look at it on the computer and look at it on your phone and try to get with girls all the time and now you're trying to live for Jesus and that has not changed, then something's clearly wrong. If all of your friends like to post on social media the little phrase AF, that don't mean you post AF. If you don't know what AF means, good for you. For everybody that does, stop posting it. You're not tired of AF unless you're not in Christ. What does that mean? Makes me sick seeing that. You haven't armed yourself with any new way of thinking. Peter's telling us that we are to embrace a new way of thinking because Christ has changed our lives. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. If you don't have a favorite verse, I would suggest this one. For I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I died with Christ, now I'm alive in Him. And the life that I now live is lived by faith in the Son of God because He loved me, because He gave Himself for me. I have a new life in Him. Galatians 2.20, what a great verse. So with the little bit of time that we have left, which could be a long time, we hope that it's a long time, we're going to live it committed to the will of God, not to our burning human passions. Verse 3. And I really like this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. What a thought. Hey, Whatever your past was, and however long your past was, hey, that's enough, right? Let the past be the past. Maybe you're young. Maybe you're 20 years old. And so your past is it's bad, and it's got some filth to it. And yes, there was no regard for Jesus and some sinfulness, but let it be the past. And everybody that's in here that's 50 years old is thinking, man, you're still young. Get focused on Jesus right now. Arm yourself with this new way of thinking and let the past be the past. That's enough of that. And if you're older and farther along in life, 50 years old, 70 years old, realize that once the past becomes the past, it is the past. And setting your attention on Jesus wholeheartedly right now is so absolutely worth it. And, let it, and be able to say, that's the past. If you start today, then tomorrow's the past. Then 2014 is the past then your high school, college days are the past, and them old relationships are the past. And look what he says. The time that is past suffices. That was enough for doing what the Gentiles do. And when he says Gentiles there, he's just meaning those people who don't believe in God. He's making a difference between the people of Israel, God's people, and the Gentiles, not God's people. Hey, that's enough. Hey, there's no need for any of us to think we need to go and chase after a little bit more sinful worldliness. We've got enough of that in the past. Now here's what's neat about him saying this. Some people get saved when they're five years old. And so their past is really, compared to most of us, not all that full of damaging acts. Some people get saved when they're 50 years old. And so they got a lot of baggage and a lot of shame and guilt that they're bringing to it. But either way, he says, it's enough. Be done with it. We don't look back and say, well, I sure wish I could do that again. I really miss her, old girl. We don't. 
You know how many times I hear of like a, a married person, they've been married for 20 years, and all of a sudden their old high school boyfriend shows up and they start thinking, well, I mean, got to be some reason why God brought them back around. No. For you to say the past is the past, and 1 Peter 4, 3 says that was long enough past, and it suffices to be the past, and for me to be done with the past, I'll see you later. No, 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 no. That's what past means. But then to help us think through this even better, not so this looks like a Baptist preacher that can get on his high horse and pick out certain things. He, he names some things. So no matter what denomination you are, what church you like, or what type of preachers you listen to, here are things that the Word of God calls out. And, and I do want to encourage you all that when the Bible was written, there were not any denominations. There were no denominations. So we're just hearing God say what He thinks is bad, that the worldly people can do, and He doesn't want His people doing it. Here it is. Sensuality. Sensuality just means I'm going to live and indulge in things that please me. I don't really care if you think they're right or you think they're wrong. We can all go find some categories or some clubs or some organizations or just some group of friends that are going to approve of some things. But living to do what pleases you only is sensuality, and that's wrong. Our passions. If you have these worldly burning passions in you that are not approved by God, they're wrong. Drunkenness said it before. I loved it when I recently led our church to change that our church covenant says that all alcohol is wrong. I love to point this out. Anybody in here, any level, any age that gets drunk, close to drunk, tipsy, buzzing, whatever, that is sin. Being drunk, drinking too much is sin, and that's different for everybody. Drinking a little bit and not being close to being drunk is not a sin. Drinking in and of itself. It no longer says in the First Baptist Church Fairdale Church Covenant that all alcohol is sin. We don't believe that. Now, another issue that happens in the USA, especially here in, in Kentucky, is that people characterize drinking with sin. Many people, not just the people here, but the people that work at Shack in the Back and the people that work in Dairy Queen, the people that work in the gas station. If they were to go pull up to Texas Roadhouse and see me sitting in the beer with a couple big tall pints there, they'd be thinking, isn't that the, isn't that the preacher at First Baptist Fairdale? So guess what? I don't drink any. I don't. I don't drink any, and y'all know that. I'm glad to. Don't really think about it much. Don't really want to. I'm not worried about it. But if I wanted to at my house, pull out a little bit of wine and say, man, y'all been wearing me out. I just need to chill out a little bit. I could sip some wine and it not be sin against God. According to what the Bible says, I don't, not at all. But I could. But Paul says, Peter says, living a life that is full of drunkenness has quickly just made yourself look like everybody else in the world. You have quickly just identified yourself with the people in the world who have no regard for Jesus, no regard for holiness, or rather, no commitment to turning away from sin. Drunkenness is a problem in the world, and you know this. Drunkenness is a big problem. I've done lots of funerals where them being an alcoholic has killed them. If there is a 1% chance that somebody identified me, Josh Green, a child of God, with the worldly ways of alcohol, I'm bothered by it. 
And I'm not going to sit up at Applebee's and have me one going, well, I don't care what everybody else thinks. No, I do care what everybody else thinks. And I want them to see the glory of God resting in a changed man. So I'm going to be far away from drunkenness. Far away from it. And I pray that you will too. If you want your life to count and for anybody to see that God has changed you and that you have armed yourselves with a new way of thinking... I know that the normal thing to do at a, Christian, at a Christian wedding often is for you to have this big Jesus ceremony that you get me involved. And then what happens is we get this reception and it turns into whatever. And maybe it's about Jesus and maybe it's not. I don't know. But it doesn't have to be that way. It's your wedding. It's your ceremony. If you don't want anybody getting drunk in it, it's okay to say, hey, I don't want anybody to get drunk at it. It'd be awesome to tell your groomsmen and your, your bridesmaids, hey, I've, I've armed myself with this new way of thinking, 1 Peter 4, 1. I've, I've turned away from my sins because Jesus died for them. Nobody's going to get drunk here at this wedding. Do with that what you want. But Peter is listing out here things that he calls problems. Things that our old lives were committed to. Things that people in the world are still committed to, but we're not. He goes on, he says, orgies. Wow. Parties that involve lots of people, getting involved in lots of ways, including sexual activity, including other things, just kind of out of control. And we used to think that, wow, this is kind of out there. This is something they do in some pagan cultures. But then social media came up, and we're all aware how near it is. Orgies. Not us. Turn ourselves away from that. I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to be associated with it all. And listen here. This doesn't mean just doing orgies. This means you looking at them. This means you looking at them. On your phone. On your tablet. We've armed ourselves with a new way of thinking. There's a way that people who don't know God live. Now, not, not all of them do that, but characteristically, categorically, lost people live a certain way. That's in the past for us. We don't want to live that way anymore. I was working at a restaurant when I was in my younger 20s, mid-20s, 10 years or so. We hadn't really started yet for the day. wasn't really all that busy and... One of the assistant managers was in the office on the computer and he started calling all the guys over. Yeah, hey, y'all come over here. There's about four or five of us. He called us over there into the office. He said, look, and he, it's right there on the computer. He's, he's, he's one of the managers too, so it's probably just bad work. There's four or five guys in this real little office. We're right there. and He's got a picture of some, of some porn. I just walked straight out. Didn't want to see it. Went back over there and kept working. One of the comments was, what's wrong, Josh? You don't, you don't like that stuff? I said, man, I got a wife. I got some kids. I don't. I don't want to be associated with the things that people who don't love God are associated with. I don't even want it to be gray. I don't want to be this on Sunday and, and on Friday nights, it, it's a little bit gray. I want to be as strong in love with Jesus and committed to Him on a Friday night in the dark as I am right now with these lights burning me up. 
And I want our whole church to look like that. Drinking parties. I know this was written 2,000 years ago, but it could have been written 2015. You know what I hear about? I hear about all the time right here in Fairdale, only 8,000 people, that we got parents that throw drinking parties for their kids in high school. Have you ever heard of such? Again, it seems like it comes out every sermon. I'm not mad at the young people that are at that party. I'm upset with the parents. And even more so, I'm kind of upset with the people that give approval to that. I'd be willing to lose some friendships. I'd be willing to lose some, some community uh, upstanding reputation if it meant calling people out. That's pathetic. It's illegal. It's against the law. Drinking parties, throwing them for your kids because they're graduating high school. What in the world? Peter says there's, there's, there's a whole world of people out there that do those things, but totally not Christians. And then lawless idolatry. Just being devoted to things that are clearly not good for us. And now living a life outside of obedience to laws because we are so into this, or so into that, or so devoted to this or that thing. He says, let those things be in the past. And to some extent or another, listen, all of us have that past. Before your mind starts going to, we're huddled up here inside this building talking bad about all those people out there. No, 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 no. He's talking to us. He's talking to us Christians. The past suffices for us having those lives. The past is enough for us to have been doing those type of things, which we're all guilty of. The past suffices for that. This is nothing new. They were doing it then, they're still doing it now. It's pretty common. Verse 4, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. It's interesting, they're surprised. It is so ingrained in the human heart, man or woman, to live for your pleasures, to live to make you happy, to live for whatever you think is right, that when somebody is going against sin in the world, they're surprised by it. What? What? You mean, you, mean you don't want to? You don't like this? Are you too good for it? Are you a goody-goody? Oh, your mama's boy? Oh, you're too clean, you're too good, you're too uppity, you're too snotty, you're too stuck up, you're too this, you're too churchy. They're surprised. They can't believe it. They can't believe that a guy wouldn't want to look at a naked woman. They can't believe that a girl doesn't let her boyfriend do that to her. They can't believe that you're cutting back on this or cutting back on that to live without debt. They can't believe it. And so, here's what happens. They're so surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Debauchery is a neat word. It's certainly a big biblical word. But debauchery is just the same thing as sensuality, really, except for it's excessive. An excessive indulging in things that please you. That's what debauchery is. You often hear it connected to alcohol, but it could be connected to anything. Debauchery is not strictly a drinking thing. And then they malign you. And they make fun of you. This happens. They make fun of you. They call you out. Hey, it's tough. You go to a, a company work party 
And companies are good at throwing parties like this, year-end appreciation. And everybody there, it's open bar, it's all paid for. I, I remember just recently a company that I know and I'm close to had one of their big company parties and it was open tab, open bar, it was going to pay for it. And just like their 12 people ran up like a $1,500 bill at the bar, doesn't take much. It's going to be awkward for you to be a Christian who goes to that party, to be there, to be a good friend, to be supportive of them, building them up, being involved, being proud of the company, being proud to be a part of the team, yet saying, no thanks. Maybe you don't stay as long, I don't know what you do. You don't join them. You don't become like them. And not always. Sometimes they'll respect you for it. Remember, I pointed this out last chapter. That it's not always that the worst case of suffering happens. But sometimes they will malign you. And here's what God says to that. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In other words, you and I are so gripped by the idea that God is God and He's our Maker and that we're accountable to Him and that one day we will stand in His judgment, that that is enough for us to control everything that we are. Yes, maybe all 100 people in this organization or in this event or at this party, maybe 99 of them are all doing the exact same thing that you don't give approval of, but in your mind, you've armed yourself with this new way of thinking, God's going to judge us one day and I don't want to be caught up with what everybody else is doing and face the judgment of God. I'm so, I'm so mindful of, First Peter tells us, that God is a judge. One comedy that's really not that good of a comedy has given us the phrase, is that where you want to be when Jesus comes back? It's a good question. Is that where you want to be associating with what you want to be associating with, doing what you want to be doing, caught up in that, rebelling in that? When Jesus comes back, He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. We are mindful of that. I remember when I was in high school, and we had a pretty good high school basketball career. Had a lot of friends. My teammates are even some of my good friends now. We still talk on a regular basis. After games, it was pretty normal where everybody shower and get cleaned up. And especially if it was a Friday. If it was midweek, Tuesday or Wednesday, a little bit different. But on Friday night... Everybody head off. They called it the spot. I used to laugh at them because that ain't very creative, the spot. They'd go there and somehow they'd get their hands on some stuff, some marijuana or some, some alcohol somehow. They'd be out in the country and they'd be at their spot. Nobody's going to catch them. It's not a big deal. And they'd do what they do. I was captain on the team and one of the stronger players, friends with all of them. I didn't go to the spot. I had a break from my teammates that time. If eight of the 12 went, two-thirds of the team went, you know how that is. All the sophomores would always go because they wanted to, to fit in. I didn't go to the spot. I was in high school. I wasn't that strong of a Christian at all. I knew I loved Jesus. I knew I hated sins. I didn't want to go. This reminds us, this idea reminds us what Peter introduced early on, that we are not at home here. Y'all, we don't fit in with the world and its values and its treasures. We don't. Every once in a while you might live in a community where a good, strong portion of the community or a lot of people in your neighborhood or a lot of people in your circle are majority Christian and it feels really good. But as soon as you step back and get a picture of the big picture, we're not at home here. 
And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 reminds us of this. It says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each, one, each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways. Remember, He called it as, this our exile. We're, we're so not at home here. We're in exile. We're going to get home soon. And heaven is our home. And we'll be with our Father forever there. But we're not home yet. And this passage reminds us of this. We are sojourners and aliens and exiles here. And when we don't join with them, sometimes they will malign us. But we have armed ourselves with a way of thinking that says, that's all right, God's the judge. God's the judge, and I'm not going to go against the judge. Lastly, verse 6. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead that though they would be judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This doesn't mean that the good news was preached to dead people. This means that people who have already died were preached to. People who have already died have believed in Christ and they are safe. You know what? At the end of the day, every one of us are going to die. And the only thing that makes us safe is if we have been forgiven of our sins. That's it. At the end of the day, that is it. Three thoughts here that will give it perspective. Number one, the wicked often think that the death of the righteous is disaster or punishment. They don't understand why Christians die. Number two, the difficulties of the present time are temporary. We know that. Our sufferings are momentary. Our sufferings are small. Our sufferings aren't the end of the day. Number three, believers have a future hope of life, the resurrection. Our hope is heaven. Our hope is that one day we're going to be with Jesus and we understand that. Tom Schreiner says that in any case, death is not the last word for believers. I love to say this at every funeral. Death is not the worst thing if you're a Christian. So our suffering is not the worst thing either. The worst thing for us is that we would not be right with God. That we would be okay with sins in our life against God. We hate that. That's what bothers us more than anything. A guilty conscience is the most uncomfortable spot you can ever be in. You're not right with God. That's what bothers us. In John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus at Lazarus' tomb where Lazarus is dead. Jesus comforts them with their dead brother. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. It's okay. It's okay that he's died. He's living with me forever in heaven. Death does not bother the Christians, just like suffering doesn't bother us as much. Suffering's not easy, but it doesn't bother us as much as sinning against God. We read Pilgrim's Progress to the kids all the time. And I may have already told you about this scene, but I want to tell it to you again. Christian is now on his, on his own, on the path to heaven. And in going there, he sees two people that have passed him coming back. And they left their old sinful lives. They left the city of destruction, it says. So Christian runs into him and he says, well, where are y'all going? They say, we're going back home. And in his mind, he thinks, back to your old ways, back to your sinful life, back to where you were dead in your sins? Why in the world are you going there, he says. And they said, because up there it's dangerous. And there are lions in the streets. And we will suffer. And Christian says, yeah, but if you go back there, you're going back to your old, dead, sinful ways where you die in the city of destruction. Surely, whatever is up there is not going to be as bad as that. That's the ultimate bad. 
They say, yeah, but there's lions up there in the streets and we will suffer. The Christian says, yeah, but you can't go back that way. They said, we're not going that way. We're going this way. And they take off going. Christian keeps going. When he gets to the lions in the streets, he sees them from afar and he's scared. He says, I'm going to suffer. These lions are going to get me. But I can't look back. He keeps going as he gets to the lions. He then, as he gets close enough, he recognizes the lions are on chains. God has the lions under chains. And the lions are only allowed to let God's people suffer as much as God will allow them. They're on chains. Christian suffers through it, keeps going, makes it to heaven. Folks, the one thing that will keep you from heaven is your sins. Do not, do not, do not think it okay to be a believer in Jesus and okay with your sins. May we repent and ask God for forgiveness because He will. He, there is power in the blood and He will forgive us all of our sins if we trust in Him and part ways with our sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for a passage that so deals with the way we ought to arm ourselves with thinking. God, I pray that today you would be at work in our hearts and we would be dealing with sin. May our allegiance to you be real and strong. May we hate our sins. God, work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.